We will uh, we'll be in Isaiah 35 today. We'll be talking about the joy uh, that we have in the Lord. Isaiah 35. I want to get you, as, you, as you're turning there um, in your paper Bibles, uh, or if you uh, go online, you can, uh, you can uh, follow along on, on there. I'd encourage you to. We're going to go top to bottom as we do um, the entire chapter. I'll move pretty quickly through it and hopefully give us a, a word of encouragement uh, and a word of, of framing that we can, we can understand how to think as joyful people here. Some background here as we, as we get there is that Isaiah, um, Isaiah, the, the name Isaiah actually means, uh, it literally means Yahweh is salvation. That's a great one. Uh, Isaiah means uh, Yahweh is salvation. He's the son of, of Amos in, uh, in about uh, 740 B.C., uh, it was his ministry through the, uh, the Assyrian invasion under Sennacherib. So he, was, uh, he did ministry, and most of his ministry was, watch out, doom is coming, and then doom came. So what a great, what a great career he had. Uh, but in it, he is so faithful in helping us understand uh, God and his, and his love and his saving power in the midst of hard times. Um, and, uh, and calling at every turn, examine yourself and turn from your sin. Uh, it's just, a, it's just a, a wonderful word that he gives. So some of those terms that we get just for Bible readers and, and for us to understand a little bit more of how to read the Bible is that uh, Isaiah is understood as a literary prophet uh, because he recorded what he said. He didn't just talk like, um, like uh, Samuel did. You know, uh, Samuel, he said things, but he never wrote, um, uh, he never wrote down uh, kind of his, his words. Here's a better one. Is Elisha would be a better example of that. Elisha did things uh, and didn't, didn't write anything down there. So Isaiah did, um, and, uh, and so did all these other, you know, if we just flip through, you know, you'll find a whole bunch of prophets that did that. He's also a, a major uh, prophet, and he's a major prophet. That's another term that you get. This is just giving you some education for, the, for understanding Isaiah. He's a major prophet because he just wrote a lot. That's really basically what that means. So if you want to be a major anything, just do it a lot, and uh, that's, that's the lesson we learned from Isaiah. So, um, so going into, though, uh, the book of Isaiah, now we, that's kind of top level. Going into this, uh, he's, he's really urging the people, turn, turn from your ways, turn from your ways. There's, there's something terrible happening if we don't turn uh, back to God. Uh, there's a section that we'll be in. We're kind of right at the tail end, the fun, awesome turn section of chapters 28 through 30, uh, 35. So 28 through 35. Uh, I'll summarize 28 through 35 right now. Uh, there are six laments in 28 through 33 where basically, uh, where basically uh, the Lord says, this is awful. You chose to do wrong things. And he names different groups and different people. And he says, this is terrible. And so then we get to chapter 34, 35 of Isaiah, which is kind of narrowing into where we're at today so we can place our text. Uh, chapter 34 says, one of your consequences of this could be, if you don't turn, judgment. And uh, the judgment isn't just like, I'll judge you and say you're wrong. Judgment, uh, chapter 34, verse 2 says, For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. So, really dark, bloody destruction. Um, uh, judgment of the worst kind physically that they could experience. Um, and so that's one direction there. And so if you read chapters 28 through 35 in one sitting, you're going to be at a very sad spot by the time you get to these words in, ver in chapter 35. I think that's important because we can always go to the fun, good points of Scripture, but we also need to know that they're placed within the context of the Lord's justice, the Lord's judgment. It's not always just saying, I'm going to do a whole bunch of good things for you and forget all the bad things. There's something that, that we, when we participate with God in His plan, we have to know 
that there is good and bad, blessings and curses, obedience, disobedience. Verse 30, uh, chapter 35 brings us, usher, ushers us joyfully into the kindness of God where he says, there will be judgment. I am true. I will hold you to holiness. However, I'm a redeeming God. I am a renewing God. I am a saving God. And that is the joy that we have that carries us. And I think this is a sweet word for us today in 2020. Because it seems like, I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but it seems like 2000, in 2020, we are experiencing something like an, an, an Exodus-like series of plagues that are tearing down our gods. Um, what do I mean by that? Um, in, in, back in the Exodus, uh, back in Egypt, where the people of God cried out, say, deliver us. We find that there are several plagues, ten plagues, that come to the, to the, Israel, or to the Egyptians. Now, God isn't just spinning his wheel, wheel of like, what bizarre thing can I throw at the people today? It looks like gnats. Give them a whole bunch of gnats. He's not just picking random things. When God sends plagues to, to Egypt, he's sending plagues that show, that go, against, uh, that go against one of their gods, small g gods, and overpowers them in a way that proves that God is sovereign. I mean, this is what the plagues are doing. So when we get the, uh, the, the river, or the Nile, turns to blood, it's not just God being gross and morbid, it's God overpowering the God of the water. And that was a big deal for them. They said, wait a second, our God can't even protect us from this God. This God might be the real God. We get all the way to the point where, where when Pharaoh is believed to be a God, he can't even continue his line of succession because his firstborn dies. Well, this God is much bigger than who we thought was running the show here. And you have to think about, take pause, who is the real God here? And so I say, I feel like 2020 seems to be like we're repeating that a little bit. When we think that our science, our medicine is what will save us, is what will keep us safe, enter COVID. And we have to take pause and say, wait a second, will it? Uh, when our money is what will save us, uh, we enter things like furlough or recession or uh, a pay decrease or unemployment. And we have to pause and ask, who is sovereign here? Uh, when we get into our, our politics, maybe our government will save us. I don't feel like I have to go too far into this one, but we, we started, I think, this year with the schizophrenic, bi bipolar, you know, partisanship here of where, how we talk about things. And now we're into like nine levels of tribalism that don't even make sense. Uh, we don't even know what we're doing politically. And we have to take pause. Well, we think that maybe we could just talk it out. The, the, the tribalistic talking points that we have now don't even allow for reason and conversation, and we can't even think through things together. It seems like we can't even have a conversation, and we have to pause and say, who is running the show? Who is sovereign? And we even get to this level of basic social interaction. It used to be pretty comforting to me when I had my friends in my house, and somehow, I, I have no idea how this, a year ago, I would never have guessed this, that I would actually be scared of my friends that's crazy. It seems like God is giving us an opportunity to pause and reflect on where our joy comes from, of who is our Savior. I mean, it almost seems like at 1 Kings 18, when, when, when the gods of Baal, or the, 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 the prophets of Baal, the priests of Baal, they put together this fire, and they try and make Baal do things that he's not able to do because he's not real, and they start to freak out. There's screaming, there's crying, there's shouting, there's cutting. It gets pretty wild when their God doesn't respond. And we see some of this now. This is 
how, if we're not doing it physically, how our hearts feel oftentimes when our gods are proven to be unreal. The question is, who will save us? Who will save us? Is there something or someone outside of this mess that can help us? Ray Ortland has said, uh, has said uh, something is so wonderful for us today to think through. He says, the salvation you prefer now is shaping who you are and which direction you will go. I'll say it maybe a different way. He said uh, that it's just a fact that all of us are moving towards our idea of the good life, whatever the good life may be. And that we'll always seek help from, uh, from who or what we, we think will help us achieve that good life. So uh, if you think uh, your, your God, your salvation is, is, uh, is, a, is a sweet career, um, maybe that's not it because you just want, you know, maybe, maybe money, nice house, comfort, safety. Maybe that's your God. We're going to do things, get the right jobs, put things in the right, you know, uh, you know uh, retirement fund. We're going we're gonna to do things in a way that gets us to that good life. You may get different degrees. You may get different jobs. You may get a, a different uh, house or a different whatever. You may make all these decisions towards that good life. And even if you go to like a really Christian idea of, no, it's actually just vocation, um, you're still going to get degrees and do things that are in line with that vocation. So we, we're always saying there is a good life and we move to it. But in that, we're assuming a whole series of good and bad things, of saviors, of problems, of solutions. And Ray Ortland says, the salvation you prefer now, what you think is the solution to your problem now, is actually shaping the direction in which you'll go. You will act in a way that is on that, whether you've named it or not. And what I love about the Bible, one of the sweetest, most wonderful things about the Bible is that it slows us down, it quiets our restless hearts, and tells us what we need to hear. And so the Bible at this point does not invite us to reason to what maybe is that good life or who is that Savior. In Isaiah 35, in the midst of much darkness of Isaiah uh, and his people, the Lord speaks and just says, I'm going to tell you what the problem is, and I'm going to tell you who the Savior is, and I'm going to tell you what the right response is. And that's so sweet because sometimes I feel like I just am in zero gravity and I can't even trust myself. And he says, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to lay it out for you. So, the words that he gives us are, be strong, fear not, rejoice in the Lord, our Savior has come. Let's get to the text. Joy comes from our Savior. This is verses 1 through 4. Joy comes from your Savior. I'll read verses 1 and 2. The wilderness and the dry land, that's where we're starting, in this dry, barren desert. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the Lord, or they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Look at these words here. We just come out of the gate. After so much death and destruction that happens in, uh, in chapter 34, if we do not turn our hearts to God, then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we get, be glad, rejoice, rejoice with joy and singing, they shall see the glory of the Lord. This is where we're being pulled to, and we have to ask that question, wait, hold up, why? Why? Let's keep reading. Verse 3, be strengthened, or strengthen the weak hand, and make firm feeble knees, 
Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. He says, be strengthened, make firm, be strong, fear not. He goes with joy and then he drops in with strength. There's real empowering substance to the Lord's work in the lives of his people. God doesn't just make you happy. He's doing something foundationally different to those who believe in the Lord. What is the source of all the strength and joy? That's in verse 4. It says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. Your Savior is the Lord. This is who will save you. And if it's the Lord, then you know that any of your problems can be, can be, can be resolved. He's the one who saves you. He's the save, uh, God is the Savior that we need. He's the one who saves us, not from our perceived enemies, not from unpleasant circumstances, not from bad ideas or bad people. Now, maybe he may do this, but that's not what he's going after here. This isn't our biggest problem. This isn't our two, 2020 um, uh, inconveniences and weird, uh, weirdness of the year. He's saving us beyond that, the enemies, the circumstances, ideas. Though he does provide us plenty of virtuous guidance to resolve these things, God is the one who saves us from that which no one else can. God saves us from the due wages of our sin. He saves us from the brokenness of our world as a result of our sin. And he gives water to the thirsty barrenness of our hearts. That's where the joy comes from in Isaiah 35. It's just one window into how much joy we can get from the Lord. God saves sinners from the just consequences of our sin. And if he can do that, he can give you a foundation. He can give you a sense of identity. He can give you a framework to think through life that you might take virtuous steps to resolve some of life's problems. And if those problems don't resolve, he gives you the heart, soul, fortitude to still find refuge in him. That's an incredible God. And if you're not into reading about all different kinds of religions, there is no other God that does that. That reality should be an empowering comfort to us. It should also be a loving correction for us. One of the resulting emotions then uh, that comes from this uh, reality is joy. And so, our second point, joy is a byproduct. If, if joy comes from our Savior, joy is also a byproduct. It's not the goal or the purpose. It is a byproduct of the Lord working in this world. Let's read verses 5 through 7. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and the stream in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Hmm. I want to go to this idea of joy as a byproduct. Uh, And I'm actually just going to quote someone way smarter than me. His name is C.S. Lewis. Joy, he says, is a byproduct. That's where I got that. Uh, Its very existence presupposes you desire not it, the joy, but something other and outer. Let me explain this. He says that that the fact that there is joy, it it, it presupposes that that um, that you desire not the joy itself, but something beyond that joy. 
And that's why joy itself is a response, is a byproduct. If our biggest problems are secondary, momentary problems, then we're going to seek secondary, momentary solutions. If we're lonely, we'll seek a companion for as long as that companion helps us with that loneliness. Uh, if, we, uh, if, we're, if we're deficient on funding, we might seek an extra job. Or if we want to make ends meet at the end of the month, then we'll seek to end, make ends meet at the end of the month, but there's only so much you can sell and so many odd jobs you can take, and then you still have that problem the next week. It says you're just dealing with the immediate momentary problems. The byproduct of this way of worshiping, of living, of seeking after God's, the byproduct of this mistaken, of mistaking our problems is possibly anxiety, frustration, anger, despair, unrest. However, the problem is not that, that, that you know, we go into our yard. The problem is not that like our one tree or that one bush in our yard isn't living and we have to water it a bunch. It's that if we, if we, if we step out, we're going to look, the whole ecosystem is bad. That's, that's the problem of sin. Sometimes we think that this one person is just the only evil person, and if I could just figure this out, we'd be good. Well, it's not just that tree. It's not just that person. Sin is worldwide. The whole place is a barren wasteland because of our sin. Your most pressing need is not financial security or any other thing. Your most pressing need is actually eternal redemption. Your financial security, or any sense of security for that matter, is negative result of sin spreading throughout the entire world. And this is where Isaiah 35 comes in to just, to just gush with the waters of life here. Our steadfastly loving and just God in his, uh, has set his sight not on simply saving us, but on renewing us, restoring us. Look at verse 6. It says, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is a God who is all about saving his people and recreating them, renewing them, but not just renewing their hearts and their emotions, not just giving them a sense of their identity, but actually making a real change in the world around us. Sure, there will be, a, there will be sight and there will be hearing, and there will be walking, and there will be singing. There will also be a renewed ecosystem. This is the living water of Christ moving to create and recreate shalom, that beautiful place where we dwell with God, and there is no tear, there is no suffering. This is the joy we get in Jesus Christ. But I'm going to get a little nerdy here because I want to look right in at a word. Uh, what's the first word of verse 5? It says, then. Bible readers, when you hear then, it means there's probably something that comes before it. We have a logical uh, procession here. Uh, we have uh, uh, something that comes before it. There is this, this then, this renewing isn't the first thing that happens. Let's go back one line in the poetry here. What do we read? He says, he will come and save you. It seems that after coming, which is the first thing he'll do, he's coming, then he'll save, then he'll renew. I don't know how close these things are together, but God just doesn't, uh, you know, throw some miracle grow on it and then let it go. He comes in, enters into our situation, saves us from our situation, the consequence of sin, and then renews us that we might have hope to seek out His holiness. 
Uh, we're going to talk about this highway of the Lord at the end of this passage. It's almost as though he, he jumps into the car with us as we're careening towards wickedness uh, and, and the way of destruction. He jumps in the car and he's like, okay, let's take the wheel over here now and merge onto the highway of holiness. He does so much more for our future. Sometimes we think that if we confess our sins, he's just going to forgive our past. He's also shaping us so that we have a virtuous future. Let's see, what does he do here? He's taking care of an eternal, important, first-order problem that we all share. He's bringing us online, one person at a time, to the reality of his kingdom-building work in our midst. Let's, let's figure out what this is. Let's look back at, at verse uh, 5 here. If you just follow along here, I'll, I'll say them a little bit differently. In verse 5, we read that, while we bring blindness to the Lord, He brings sight. While we bring deafness, He renews our unhearing hearts, or our unhearing ears. When we don't uh, walk well, or maybe even walk at all, He gives us legs, and He straightens our paths. When we don't speak, he gives us songs of great joy. Let's, let's think about this. Don't just read the poetry and say this is great. Think about it, because it's beautiful. Why do the mute sing in the first place? It's because their hope has become reality. The singing, the joy, is a byproduct of God working in their life. Now we'll ask another question. Why does the weary world rejoice? We know the answer. We sing it. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That new and glorious morn is a little baby Jesus satisfying our dry desert with the thirst of the rushing waters of Jesus Christ. That's why we rejoice. Our joy is not the goal uh, in this life, but rather it's a byproduct when we realize that God alone has turned our humblest state. I think, maybe think of it this way. I've given a lot of images uh, to kind of understand how our joy results from the work of God in our life. Maybe this one's helpful. Uh, hopefully you enjoy the smell of sawdust. It's as, though, it's as though our joy is the sawdust in the wood shop of God. And as he's woodworking history towards redemption, the sawdust falls, and we get that sweet smell of sawdust. And that sweet smell helps us to know, helps us to realize that the master is at work here. That's some of our joy, when our hope meets reality, one shaving at a time. And in that way, a similar idea, joy is a signpost. Joy comes from our Savior. Joy is a byproduct, but it's also a signpost. It's a, it's a sign that says he's at work. There's more, more joy-giving truth here in verse 6. Let's look at one more word. We get this, uh, we get this, uh, this word... For water breaks forth in the wilderness. For this is the reason that we have this rejoicing. Why does, I'm going to return to that question, why does the mute sing for joy? It's because of something. It's not because the Lord injected joy into the mute. What happens when you inject joy into someone who can't speak? They are filled with joy and can't speak. What happens when you give someone who can't speak voice, they sing of their joy. 
the Lord is maybe not working directly on your solution to whatever, you're, whatever ails you, whatever is that thing you cry out for. He may be solving that, restoring that, renewing that through the side door. He may be dealing with something much deeper than what you actually think. And at some point, that groundswell comes forward in shouts and songs of joy. It's amazing how the Lord steps out of the situation and works for the renewing. Our work of our Savior in renewing all things is not because you and I are uniquely special on our own merits, but rather we see these things happening uh, in, in Isaiah 35 as evidences of God's renewal of all things. God doesn't, God's purpose is not that Josh Casey be saved and be awesome. God's purpose is that all creation be renewed. Josh Casey happens to be part of that. Joy, then, is a signpost, I've already said. Let me, let me explain it some more. It's pointing to the, oncoming, uh, to the coming completion of our Savior's work. And here's where we'll, uh, where we'll jump around to see if, if I'm just making this up or if Jesus actually agrees with me. I hope he does. Let's turn to um, Luke 7, verses uh, 18 through, uh, through 23. So, these words we've just read, they show up a little bit later in the Bible. Um, there's a crazy man named John. He lives out in the wilderness. He's a Bible reader. Uh, he's, he reads a lot of the Bible. He knows a lot of the Bible. He's also not Presbyterian, but a Baptist. Um, and so he's out there in the wilderness doing, it, doing his thing. And then he gets these reports of this guy named Jesus. And Jesus is doing things. And they, they, they say, hey, John, this is happening. And what John, the Bible reader who knows the word of the Lord, says is something like this. I'm kind of making this up, but this is kind of what I imagine happened in his head. He said, wait a second. This sure sounds like a whole lot of signposts. I'm starting to smell some sawdust of the kingdom being built. I should probably send some guys to go figure this out. So we read in verse 18, the disciples of John reported these things to him. And John said, Call, uh, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Are you that guy or is this just a weird convenience that you are uh, doing a lot of the stuff you said you would do back there in Isaiah 35? And here's how Jesus answers this, verse 22. Jesus answered them, go tell John what you have seen and heard. Ready? Here he goes. The blind will receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He just like opens up Isaiah 35 and he says, yeah, I'm that guy. He's here. He's come. Great joy. We have a reason for everlasting joy because the Savior has come, but he doesn't stop there. That's a part for me. I just say, this gives me great hope. This is the guy who will come and save us. But that happened, and then he died and was resurrected. What do we do today? Because that was back then when they're trying to figure out the first coming, the first advent of Jesus. What do we do as we wait for the second advent? You can jump ahead to Revelation 21, because we hear similar things in there as well. As we move towards this recreation, this restoration of shalom, that perfect dwelling place with God and man in each other's presence, where it will be wonderful. We hear this. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven 
from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her. And I heard a loud voice of a throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. No matter what happens in your life, no matter, no matter what, what trial, what circumstance, whatever separates you from those whom you love, separates you from a sense that you have a place in life, God has come and he will come to make you never have those thoughts again. You will be in perfect community because of Christ. You will be in the presence, we will be in the presence of God together and it will be a great joy not because I see you again and we get to hang out again. That's, that's, that's not where our joy comes from. It comes from the fact that we get to worship actually in plain sight of God. That is an incredible day. And he says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's not just give us a whole bunch of good stuff and distract us from the bad. He actually deals with the bad. The former things have passed away. It's not like we get a new relationship and the old relationship gives us that, you know, that shame, that guilt from like unsettled relationship uh, and then we just move on and we get another one. It's all gone. Everything's good. And he who's seated on the throne, that's Jesus, says, Behold, I am making all things new. If you don't like 2020, good news. Eternity is not 2020. These are signposts. These things show us that God is at work. These are signposts placed on the highway of holiness. Let's read about this highway in verses 8 and 9. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of, the, the way of holiness. So imagine this. Uh, the, the highway is there, way of holiness, and the unclean shall not pass over it. Only those who are forgiven and made clean. It shall be to those who walk on the way. Even, those, even, even if they are fools, they shall not go away. Which gives me hope. Like even if you're as dumb as Josh, like you're not going to fall off because God's got you. No lion shall be there. Uh, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall, not be, uh, they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall, not obtain, uh, they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sign shall flee away. There is a path that we go on. This is the highway of holiness, and those who are forgiven are on that path marching towards Zion, that city of God that we read of. And as we march there, we will be protected. And as we march there and we sing, we will have gladness. We will obtain gladness and joy. Literally, the Hebrew there does not say we obtain gladness and joy. It says we will be overtaken by joy. And then again, God reinforces that he doesn't just give us good. He also deals with the bad. And sorrow and sign shall flee away. This is a source of joy. This is more than just that momentary, urgent problem that we take care of. God is working at the everlasting, important problem. I'll leave us with actually a note from the ESV Study Bible, which says it so beautifully. In an environment 
of joyful abundance, God's pilgrim people are led forward to Zion, singing their way to their eternal home. And so we will be singing uh, these words uh, in, in a moment. And we can sing them rightly. Joy to the world, our Savior has come. Let's pray. God, I want to just pray the words of yet another sweet hymn that you have given us, the church, to sing to you. Joyful, joyful, we adore you. You are God of glory. You are Lord of love. Because your life-giving water pours out in the barren wasteland of our spiritual lives, in the barren wasteland of our real lives. We drink it, and therefore our hearts unfold like flowers before you. And as they open, they open to the sun above. Please give us those waters. Please give us the discipline to drink from those and only those waters. We pray that you would melt the clouds of sin and sadness, that you would drive the dark of doubt away. And, O oh God, our Lord, giver of immortal gladness, we pray that you would fill us with the light of day. And, God, we pray to you, we thank you, and we ask you that you might restore to us the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.